Imagine a world in which the minimum wage is the same amount as a gallon of milk, $1.10, and 38% of the median annual income, $8,550, can get you a sweet new Dodge Challenger or a Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, fueled by $0.35 cent a gallon gas. And while you're out, can you pick me up a 12-cent postage stamp, a 23-cent loaf of bread, and a 62-cent carton of eggs? Welcome to 1969, where the new Jamaican dollar has just made its entrance among world treasuries, and in the United States, it is still legal to pay with a $500,000, 5000 or $10,000 bill, but those denominations will not be given as change because they are being taken out of circulation. If you happen to need money after counting house hours and are near the Long Island branch of Chemical Bank in Rockville Center, New York, you can try the convenient new Automatic Telling Machine, or ATM, that dispenses cash with the use of a bank card. Periodicals have been treated to a virtual smorgasbord of headlines this year. Starting with a student lighting himself on fire in Wenceslas Square to stave off an invasion of Czechoslovakia by the Soviet Union, the first successful human eye transplant, the end of the Little Lulu comic strip, the first appearance of Guardians of the Galaxy in Marvel Superheroes number 18, DC Comics raising their prices from 12 cents to 15 cents, the Chappaquiddick avocation where Senator Edward Kennedy drove a car into a lake that was found with a woman inside, Yasser Arafat becoming president of the PLO, the first Gap store opening in San Francisco, Prince Charles being dubbed the Prince of Wales, French President Charles de Gaulle resigning from office, the death of beloved American President Dwight D. Eisenhower, or Ike, and North Vietnamese President Ho Chi Minh. The Godfather finally got published in the U.S. The Godfather of Soul, James Brown, put out five separate songs about popcorn, and The Godfather of Snacks, Orville Redenbacher, presented his gourmet popping corn for the first time. In sports, the Jets win Super Bowl III versus the Baltimore Colts. Majestic Prince wins the Kentucky Derby. The Major League Baseball logo has its coming out party. Willie Mays ties Babe Ruth's 600 career home runs. And the Miracle Mets rally a historic comeback to win the World Series against the Baltimore Orioles. In other New York City bulletins, 10 paintings were defaced at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Stonewall Inn riots brought discrimination of gay rights to the nation's attention. Norman Mailer ran for mayor with the manifesto that the five boroughs should secede from the state of New York and transform into the 51st state in the Union. And just a few days leading up to the July 20th moon landing, the New York Times retracted an article that it had printed in 1920 stating that space travel was preposterous. It seemed like nothing was impossible. The USSR had already placed Yuri Gagarin into orbit and floated a probe into the atmosphere of Venus, which ultimately crashed under pressure. 
the United States responded with rapid mission turnover. Apollo 9 tested the lunar module in March. Apollo 10 did a close flyby of the moon before successfully returning to Earth in May. And by July, Apollo 11 carried Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin aboard the Eagle, where they put boot prints on our planet's only natural satellite surface. And lest you forget that the United States went to the moon twice in 1969, Apollo 12. Can you name the third or fourth humans to step on the moon? If not, don't worry, I had to look them up too. It was Alan Bean and Charles Conrad. Put on your time pants, because today's curiosities are a half century old. It's a golden jubilee. was a monumental year in world events whose effects are still relevant today. As the United Kingdom abolished the death penalty, violence in America was at an all-time high. Killers James Earl Ray and Saran Saran confessed to the previous year's assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, and the disparity dividing the country was growing ever more extensive over the quagmire of the Vietnam War, which was now entering its fourth administration via former Vice President Richard Nixon, who had snatched the office he lost to John F. Kennedy nearly a decade prior from another former Vice President, Hubert Humphrey, on the platform that troop withdrawals would begin immediately. By autumn, state militias were regularly called upon to shut down protesting and civil unrest nationwide. In fact, Nixon was so ambivalently out of touch that he claimed to have been watching sports during the November 15th anti-war demonstration, the biggest of its kind in history, condemning his lack of follow-through on campaign promises, happening at the gates of the executive mansion. Reformers, like the recently rubbed out Martin Luther King Jr., were quick to point out the disproportionate numbers of insolvent African Americans that had been tossed into the fray of a war that they opposed. Why should they die for a country where they themselves were oppressed and denied equal rights? The answer was to enforce the selective service system that had been dormant for 27 years. The lottery was supposed to even out the playing field in the thick of males aged 18 to 25 who were conscripted to serve in the military. Thousands of young Americans born on September 14th would have the unhappiest of birthdays as it became the first of many raffle dates drawn where... Everybody wins an all-expense-paid trip to Saigon, including excursions of thwarting the spread of communism throughout French Indochina and the globe, because Red Scare sentiment still boiled in the cistern of Western governments. I mean, it had only been 15 years since the scrutinous questioning of anti-communist crusader Joseph McCarthy. 
though two of the senator's biggest supporters did pass away in 1969. Presidential Pappy Joseph Kennedy Sr. and beat poet Jack Kerouac, who supposedly watched the McCarthy hearings while smoking a joint and rooting in contrast of condemnation of the senator. I think Joseph Kennedy flies under the radar to us today because of the dynasty and Christendom thrust upon his kids and the seemingly real Kennedy curse. The Patriarch of Camelot was quite the savvy player and owned the most prominent privately owned building in the nation, Merchandise Mart in Chicago, Illinois. He avoided the September 16, 1920 Wall Street bombing by seconds having been forced to the ground from the explosion on his way into the building and is one of the lucky few to pull through the Great Depression just fine. $58.4 million in today money. By refinancing struggling movie studios and merging them into Radio Keith Orpheum, RKO and engaging in a fling with the Academy Award-nominated, Golden Globe-winning, silent film actress best known for Sunset Boulevard and six tumultuous marriages of infidelity, Gloria Swanson. The irony of her multiple matrimonies, to me, are the titles of some of her earlier films, which included The Sultan's Wife, Every Woman's Husband, for better, for worse, don't change your husband, why change your wife, her husband's trademark, Bluebeard's eighth wife, and father takes a wife. Following her second divorce, the adulterous luminary was forced to sign a morals clause that was attached to her studio contract before she could marry French aristocrat Henri, the Marquis de Falaise de la Cordre, who shifted his efforts from nobility to movie executive. With his help, Gloria sought to cultivate a film adaptation of a controversial and unofficially blacklisted play titled Rain. But Hollywood's Hayes Code stated, quote, no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented, and law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. End quote. Which created roadblocks for Swanson's Sadie Thompson. She was further frustrated by her leading man, Lionel Barrymore, who allegedly wore the same outfit every day and smelled like it too, until Swanson complained to the crew, who told him to take a bath and change his britches. The struggles Gloria encountered throughout the exploit caused her to seek out Joseph Kennedy, to manage expenditures for her next run of projects. The two became quite cozy with one another and began an affair that was a well-known Hollywood secret. Kennedy was unpleased with the aura surrounding her character in Sadie Thompson and told Swanson to sell her distribution rights, 
which ended up being a fiduciary blunder. In the interest of getting Henri out of the way so he could carry on with Gloria, Joe produced Queen Kelly and hired Henri to execute the studio's investments in France as Gloria played sex fiend Queen Regina V of Kronberg. But Kennedy skipped out after Queen Kelly's failure, ending their hanky-panky and her third consortium. Scatter curiosity, a scene from Queen Kelly is featured in Sunset Boulevard when Norma Desmond is looking at old footage of herself. The philandering Kennedy certainly had a type because he also hooked up with another unchaste blue blood of classic cinema, Marlene Dietrich, who was only married once but carried on romantic rendezvous with a list of A-listers. Gary Cooper, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., James Stewart, Yul Brenner, Errol Flynn, George Bernard Shaw, John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, Kirk Douglas, and even Joe's son, John F. Kennedy. But another thing Dietrich had in common with Swanson was their contribution to humanitarian causes in World War II. In 1939, Gloria was devoted to helping Jewish inventors and scientists escape Europe, and Marlene organized the transfer of French and German refugees to the United States, sold more war bonds than any other celebrity, and was awarded the Medal of Freedom for her efforts. Patriot Joe Kennedy, on the other hand, had positioned himself as the first chairman of the U.S. Secretaries and Exchange Commission, the SEC, headed the Maritime Commission, and served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Kingdom. But amid the Blitzkrieg, Joey fled to the English countryside while other ambassadors and government officials bravely stood their ground in London, prompting some damaging PR from England. Quote, I thought my daffodils were yellow until I met Joe Kennedy. End quote. I guess the first victim of the aforementioned Kennedy curse would be Joseph's eldest daughter, Rosemary, who had erratic mood swings, bouts of violence, and was diagnosed as mentally retarded. So, Joseph okayed doctors to perform psychosurgery without even consulting his wife about it. The lobotomy failed, and Rosemary was quietly moved to a hospital in Wisconsin where she remained invalid for the next 64 years, was seldomly spoken of, and never once visited by her father. Joe was more focused on his eldest son, Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., becoming president, but J.P. died over the English Channel in 1944, serving as a U.S. Navy bomber. Victim number two. You are, no doubt, somewhat familiar with his other kids, Senator and President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Senator and Attorney General Robert Francis Kennedy, Senator Edward Kennedy, or Ted, 
daughter Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was paramount to the creation of the Special Olympics, and yet another daughter, Jean Kennedy Smith, who served as U.S. Ambassador to Ireland. As stated at the top of this tangent, Joe supported Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy's anti-communist rhetoric and the two had an understanding that McCarthy would go easy on his commie talk in Massachusetts, where JFK was a Democratic senator, in exchange for John's abeyance counter to his party's stance on the issue. And as a little bit of insurance, McCarthy hired Bobby Kennedy to work for him on the Republican side, creating a dilemma for Johnny Boy. Quote, How can I demand that Joe McCarthy be censured for things he did when my own brother was on his staff? End quote. RFK came to resign after butting heads with McCarthy's head aide, Roy Cohn the villain of playwright Tony Kushner's two-part gay fantasia on national themes, Angels in America. JFK was conveniently in the hospital when the vote to admonish McCarthy in 1954 was cast. Half a dozen years later, when Kennedy just nearly beat Nixon in the first nationally televised presidential debates, John joked that his father wouldn't pay for a landslide, making Joseph Sr. one of only four president dads to survive their son's time in the Oval Office. Others are George Tryon Harding, Nathaniel Fillmore, and George H.W. Bush. Joe had a stroke in 1961, paralyzing the right side of his body, John was assassinated two years later, Bobby was liquidated in 1968, and Joseph Kennedy Sr. joined them in 1969. As did the other previously mentioned pillar of the era, Jack Kerouac. In fact, the day before Joe Kennedy. Jack was a figure of the beatnik literary movement best known for scrawling the Bible of the Beat Generation, On the Road, which was supposedly drafted in 20 days in a virtual nonstop marathon whereby his second wife had to sustain him with pea soup, coffee, cigarettes, and Benzedrine. His style is said to resemble the jazz doodlings of Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, and Thelonious Monk. Jack called it spontaneous prose. But Truman Capote cattily remarked, quote, That's not writing, it's typing. End quote. Jack was assiduously discharged from the U.S. Navy because of his indifferent character and schizoid personality, and two years later, he was arrested for disposing of evidence in a murder that his friend had committed. When Jack's dad denied bail money, the father of his girlfriend offered to spring him from the pokey if he married the girl. The foul play is the basis of Kerouac's and the hippos were boiled in their tanks. By the 1950s, Jack was living as the Wizard of Ozone Park in Queens, New York, 
where he is said to have coined the term beat to depict a person with no money and little hope of getting a job. Though he asserted, quote, I'm not a beatnik, I'm a Catholic, end quote. An abdominal hemorrhage brought on by chronic alcohol use took the poet's life at age 47. Several musicians give Kerouac props for inspiring their songs, like Patti Smith, Tom Waits, Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, The Beatles, 10,000 Maniacs, and most prominently, The Doors, whose keyboardist Ray Manzarek said, quote, I suppose if Jack Kerouac had never written On the Road, The Doors would never have existed, end quote meaning Jim Morrison might not have been arrested in Miami for allegedly showing his privates during a performance earlier in the year at the Dinner Key Auditorium. The charges included public drunkenness, lewd and lascivious behavior, profanity, and indecent behavior. Indeed, anomalous minds were affecting literature and music of the generation, as it usually does. Willie Nelson played his famous guitar Trigger for the very first time. The Turtles frontman Mark Volman fell off the stage five times when they played at the White House. And though Frank Sinatra had been singing for 30 years up to this point, he finally got around to recording the song that he is most associated with, My Way. Music news was sensational too particularly for British bands, new and old. The Who's rock opera concept album Tommy brought praise to a pinball wizard. Led Zeppelin's self-titled inaugural album kicked off their first U.S. tour, inspiring the creation of the term Headbangers. And by year's end, Led Zeppelin II was released. The Beatles issued Abbey Road with the paradigmatic cover of the Fab Four crossing the thoroughfare in front of the Camden Borough recording studio of the same name, funeral procession style, with John Lennon in white as the clergyman, Ringo Starr in black as the undertaker, Paul McCartney, who is out of step and barefoot as the corpse, and George Harrison in denim as the gravedigger. Consequently, they would perform for the last time together on the rooftop of their offices at the Apple Building in 1969, a scene immortalized in the oft-forgotten Beatles film, Let It Be. John Lennon married Yoko Ono and demonstrated a week-long bed-in-for-peace campaign at the Amsterdam Hilton. Paul McCartney married Linda Eastman, while George Harrison and his wife Patty were arrested for possession of hashish. The Rolling Stones had a roller coaster of a year with the release of Let It Bleed, the death of guitarist and founder Brian Jones, who tragically drowned in his swimming pool, and the rumbustious proceedings to come from hiring the Hells Angels to provide security for their concert in Altamont, California, which resulted in a deadly stabbing. The 11th Annual Grammy Awards were held at Radio City Music Hall, praising Bing Crosby, Johnny Cash, Dionne Warwick, Otis Redding, 
The Temptations, and Aretha Franklin, who had to contend with the whole Vicki Jones fiasco of 1969. Have you ever heard of this? Vicki was arrested for impersonating Aretha Franklin at a few compensated engagements, but she put on such a good show that nobody demanded a refund. Such love was the perfect prelude for the Outdoor Woodstock Festival in upstate New York, where it became the gold standard to which all such conglomerations since have strived to attain. Featuring performances by Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker, Ravi Shankar, Arlo Guthrie, Joan Baez, Santana, Canned Heat, The Grateful Dead, CCR, Sly and the Family Stone, The Band, Blood, Sweat and Tears, and Sha Na Na, just to name a few. History was made again at the 12-hour Toronto Rock and Roll Revival, starring Little Richard, Chicago, who had just distributed their primogenial album Chicago Transit Authority, Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, John Lennon performing as a member of the Plastic Ono Band, and Alice Cooper secured his persona in Shock Rock, succeeding the infamous chicken incident when he went to grab a pillow that was used in his theatrical stage show that, for some reason, had a chicken in it. Upon its discovery, Cooper, who rationalized that all birds could fly, lobbed the chicken into the crowd, only to witness them mutilate the poor fowl and throw it back on the rostrum. And another chick killer returned to live performances in the Billboard charts in 1969 with Suspicious Minds and In the Ghetto, Elvis the Pelvis Presley, who had put in motion a 57-performance concert series at the International Hotel in Las Vegas just after shooting his final movie, Change of Habit. Another film career that died in 1969 was Boris Karloff's, the English thespian best known for his horror movies, because he himself ceased to be. Born William Henry Pratt, Karloff shot over 80 motion pictures before characterizing his iconic Frankenstein's Monster, Imhotep in The Mummy, and The Monster Again for Son of Frankenstein, in the company of former Dracula star Bella Lugosi as Igor, and Basil Rathbone, who would later portray Sherlock Holmes, as Dr. Frankenstein. Boris also made a live appearance as Frankenstein's monster during a celebrity baseball game where he hit a monster dinger, pun totally intended, and stiffly stomped around the bases, causing Buster Keaton, who was catching, to flail about and faint funnily. Boris's niche of the macabre on the silver screen exposed him to copious hours in a makeup chair, leading him to be a pivotal member of the newly formed Screen Actors Guild. 
which would address such strainful working conditions of entertainers. Scattered curiosity, Boris Karloff's aunt, Anna Leona Wences, was a woman of the world who recounted stories of regal life in the exotic land of Siam, whose source material was used to create the Rodgers and Hammerstein Broadway musical, The King and I. Boris, too, headed for the Great White Way in the original production of Arsenic in Old Lace and put his English accent to work as Captain Hook in a musical version of Peter Pan. And even though we are reminded of it every single year, people forget that Boris Karloff brought one more green monster to life, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas. He narrated the 1966 animated tour de force, but did not sing, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. That was the unaccredited Thurl Ravenscroft. But the honorary Dr. Seuss could do nothing for Karloff's advanced emphysema, which had resorted him to taking oxygen breaths from a tank between film takes and succumbing in 1969. Appropriately, Boris had five movies released from beyond the grave. Fear Chamber, a.k.a. Torture Zone, House of Evil, a.k.a. Dance of Death, Cauldron of Blood, a.k.a. Blind Man's Bluff, The Incredible Invasion, a.k.a. Alien Terror, and The Isle of the Snake People, a.k.a. Cult of the Dead. Popular non-horror photo plays from 50 years ago were The Love Bug, Funny Girl, Easy Rider, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and the highly controversial X-rated Academy Award winner, Midnight Cowboy. Gene Kelly directed Walter Matthau, Louis Armstrong, Barbara Streisand, Tommy Toon, and Michael Crawford in Hello, Dolly!, and the unlikely movie musical stars of Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin were cast in Lerner and Lowe's Paint Your Wagon. John Wayne won an Academy Award for True Grit, Peter O'Toole for Goodbye Mr. Chips, and newcomers Goldie Hawn and Patty Duke won for Cactus Flower. Film also saw the debuts of Ian McKellen, Al Pacino, David Bowie, whose space oddity also hit big in 1969, Ed Begley Jr., Farrah Fawcett, Christopher Walken, Melanie Griffith, Bridget Fonda, Sam Elliott, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose first movie Hercules in New York had to be dubbed because his accent was too thick, and George Lazenby for his one and only likeness as James Bond in... On Her Majesty's Secret Service. As for the small screen, all CBS and ABC daytime TV was finally broadcast in color. Johnny Carson dominated Merv Griffin in late-night television, while America welcomed into their living rooms for the very first time The Brady Bunch, Love American Style, H&R Puffin Stuff, The Johnny Cash Show, Scooby-Doo, Monty Python's Flying Circus, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, 
Sesame Street, The Debbie Reynolds Show, The Joe Namath Show, The Leslie Uggam Show, The Benny Hill Show, The Jim Neighbors Hour, and The Rankin Bass Frosty the Snowman Holiday Special. Boob Tubery was also rocked by the Jackson 5 making their first national idiot box appearance on the Hollywood Palace. Major Anthony Nelson, Larry Hagman, marrying Barbara Eden on I Dream of Jeannie. Bewitch substituting Dick Sargent with Dick York. CBS replacing the Smothers Brothers with Hee Haw. And then having the audacity to air the abysmal Archie Sugar Sugar Jingle Jangle Christmas Show. On stage, the Dance Theater of Harlem opened its doors for the first time as the Broadway season saw the New York premieres of some now time-honored productions such as Company, Private Lives, Zorba, and La Strada. The 23rd Tony Awards were held at the Mark Hellinger Theater. Amongst the winners were Jerry Orbach for Promises, Promises, 1776 for Best New Musical, Angela Lansbury for Dear World, Al Pacino for Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie, and James Earl Jones for The Great White Hope. Taking his final bow in 1969 was Tony Award winner Frank Lesser. Composer of a plethora of Tin Pan Alley standards, and what Bob Fosse and I consider to be, quote, the greatest American musical of all time, Guys and Dolls. A true New Yorker, Frank's father was a piano instructor who did not teach his son because by age four, the boy was playing just fine by ear. Lesser was penning one-off numbers in Hollywood when he was called upon to serve in World War II to write patriotic songs for the armed forces, like What Do You Do in the Infantry and Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. Scatter curiosity, Frank Lesser is the mind behind the Broadway show's The Most Happy Fella, how to succeed in business without really trying, Where's Charlie, and the Canticles, Hoop-dee-doo, Inchworm, Jingle Jangle Jingle, The Moon of Manakura, Standing on the Corner, and everybody's favorite rapey Christmas anthem, Baby It's Cold Outside, which Frank used to perform with his first wife, Lynn Garland, at private parties. She was reportedly devastated when Frank sold the rights to their song for use in the MGM film Neptune's Daughter. Celebrating their Golden Jubilee this year, 2019, are, and hopefully they don't mind my pointing out their Year of the Rooster half-century status, Marilyn Manson, Muncho's Potato Chips, Norman Reedus, Jason Bateman, Dave Grawl, Patton Oswalt, The Glue Stick, Jennifer Aniston, Paul Rudd, Jake Tapper, Mariah Carey, Renee Zellweger, Game Detergent, Cory Booker, Kate Blanchett, Tucker Carlson, Horatio Sands, 
Peter Dinklage, Ice Cube, Flavor Ice, J-Lo, Edward Norton, Christian Slater, Frosted Mini Wheats, Matthew Perry, Big Wheel Tricycles, Jack Black, Jason Priestley, Wendy's Fast Food Chain, Tyler Perry, Zach Galifianakis, Long John Silvers, Gwen Stefani, Battery-Powered Smoke Detectors, Brett Favre, Nancy Kerrigan, Charms Blow Pops, Trey Parker, Manwich, Spike Jones, Samantha B, Matthew McConaughey, Ken Griffey Jr., Capri Sun, Mariano Rivera, Boeing 747, the first jumbo jet with the bulging upper deck, and non-expanding recreational foam, or Nerf, which was devised by the Parker brothers using polyurethane foam as the, quote, world's first official indoor ball, end quote, claiming that you can, quote, throw it indoors. You can't damage lamps or break windows. You can't hurt babies or old people, end quote, which is not entirely true because I definitely broke a lamp in my house with a Nerf football. Just saying, it's Nerf or nothing. Perhaps the most significant birthday, however, goes to Kissimmee, Florida's Disney World, which started construction in 1969. Across the nation, in the already built New Orleans Square portion of Anaheim, California's Disneyland, the Haunted Mansion first carried patrons aboard Doom Buggies on August 9, 1969. Annexed by Liberty Square in Orlando's Magic Kingdom and Fantasyland in Tokyo Disneyland, the attraction has entirely different names in Disneyland Paris, where it is Phantom Manor, and Hong Kong Disneyland, where it is called Mystic Manor. And on the very same evening of the ghoulish spectacle's opening, actual horror was transpiring 40 miles north in Los Angeles, at the Benedict Canyon Love House of pregnant Rosemary's baby ingenue Sharon Tate that she shared with her husband, film director Roman Polanski. The couple was repudiated for having manifolds of prominent people over all the time. Steve McQueen, Joan Collins, Mia Farrow, Kirk Douglas, Jim Morrison, Peter Fonda, the Mamas and the Papas, as well as a host of eccentric Hollywood weirdos. That fateful night, while Polanski was out of town filming, Sharon Tate and four other victims were brutally choked and gored to death by the Manson family upon their return from dinner at the El Coyote Cafe. Tate was shanked 16 times. And the following day... The psycho killer struck again, butchering two more dignitaries of Los Angeles high society. Arrests were made a month later. The motive behind Tate's murder was not whom they sacrificed, but rather the Cielo Drive residence itself because it had previously belonged to music producer Terry Melcher, who took no interest in making Charlie Manson's music. 
Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which tells a factually skewed account of the events. No spoilers here. Go see it for yourself. I love the movie because Quentin Tarantino does such a lovely job of giving us the history that we wish had happened, like Hitler getting blown away in Inglorious Bastards and Jamie Foxx blowing away Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. Sharon was a military brat who moved around a lot, winning beauty pageants and posing in a swimsuit for the Armed Forces publication Stars and Stripes. Tate climbed the ranks as a film extra, today they're called background artists, and got noticed by actors Richard Boehmer and Jack Palance, who opened doors for the lovely young up-and-comer, who would go on to play opposite of Dean Martin and undergo stunt training with Bruce Lee. She was almost cast in the exemplar television series Petticoat Junction, but was instead utilized in smaller roles on Mr. Ed and the Beverly Hillbillies. But her Hollywood reputation caused her to make mention of herself as, quote, Sexy Little Me. Sexy Little Me, after playing the bikini-clad role of Malibu Queen of the Surf in Don't Make Waves before shooting Barabbas, Eye of the Devil, The Fearless Vampire Killers, and her Golden Globe-nominated performance in Valley of the Dolls. Reviews called her, quote, a hopelessly stupid and vain starlet, end quote. Co-stars Patty Duke and Barbara Parkins could not have disagreed more. They embraced Sharon, praised her work, and remained close for the last two years of her life. Scatter curiosity... Judy Garland, who also died in 1969, was initially cast in Valley of the Dolls as a publicity stunt, but was superseded by Susan Hayward when Garland failed to deliver the goods. Judy had just the opposite problem of Sharon. Having been put through bijou training as a teen at Metro-Golden-Mayer, along with Elizabeth Taylor, Ava Gardner, and Lana Turner. She was known as the ugly duckling of the group. And Lewis Mayer referred to Garland as his little hunchback and instructed makeup artists to cap her teeth and disc her nostrils to reshape her nose and maintain that girl-next-door look. It's no wonder that the last 20 years of her life were a swivet of self-doubt, failed nuptials, substance abuse, and being chased by the tax man. Judy was born Frances Ethel Gum as the youngest daughter to parents who operated a Grand Rapids, Minnesota movie house that also put on stage shows. Her family aptly called her Baby as she started performing with her mother Ethel on the piano and singer sisters Mary Jane, Suzanne, and Dorothy at the age of two. She was the little girl with the leather lungs. The Gums moved to California to run another theater on account of Judy's dad, Francis, 
being accused of hitting on the male ushers. In 1935, Lewis Mayer sent a representative to check out these gum sisters who brought Judy in for an audition, where she sang Zing Went the Strings of My Heart and the old Yiddish favorite Eli Eli. But studio heads didn't really take notice of her until she sang You Made Me Love You, I Didn't Want to Do It to Clark Gable on his birthday at a studio party. That was when they decided to team she and Mickey Rooney up in a bunch of MGM's backyard musicals. It was during this time Garland proclaimed to have been given amphetamines and barbiturates by the studio to keep up with the rigorous lifestyle of churning out movie after movie after movie. However, Rooney denied such accusations. MGM was obsessed with her weight and resigned her to soup and lettuce for meals and tobacco to stave off her hunger, which only made her more self-conscious and neurotic until her makeup artist for Meet Me in St. Louis told her that she was pretty and did not need rubber nose discs and tooth caps. Judy was suffering from nervous breakdowns, failing to appear for work, unable to perform when she did show up, and was admitted to a sanitarium in 1947. Continued work struggles led her to be displaced by Ginger Rogers in the Barclays of Broadway with would-be co-star Fred Astaire. Desperate to recoup, Judy underwent electroshock therapy for cheerlessness, but the treatment failed to prevent her from being sacked again this time from Annie Get Your Gun. Summerstock would be her last MGM picture in 1950 after chronic truancy and halting of production put the studio in the red on the endeavor. And Judy was somewhat relieved to be rid of the burdens that came along with being chained to a studio contract and returned to the stage hooking up with her tour manager, Sidney Luft, who became her third husband and co-producer for Warner Brothers' remake of 1937's A Star is Born. Time magazine complimented Garland's performance as, quote, just about the greatest one-woman show in modern movie history, end quote. Yet she lost the Academy Award to Grace Kelly. But Garland did acquire the Golden Globe. The slight upswing from A Star is Born saw the Contra Alto playing Las Vegas at the New Frontier Hotel, a panoply that was extended because of demand. Plus, she only missed one performance, and her understudy was Jerry Lewis. After a battle with hepatitis in 1960, Doctors told her that she'd be dead within five years. Judy stubbornly protested and lived nine, leaving behind a total of three children, five husbands, eight studio albums, and over 35 movies. 
Judy Garland died in the bathroom of her rented London home at age 47. Her Wizard of Oz co-star, Ray Bolger, said upon hearing the news, quote, she just plain wore out, end quote. But the role she epitomized would live on a hundred years later, 50 years from now, in the Japanimation universe of The Wonderful Galaxy of Oz, which takes place in the 2060s, as does Hanna-Barbera's The Jetsons. In the real universe of 2069, the Age of Aquarius will truly dawn. A cosmic call sent back in 1999 from the Eupatoria planetary radar will finally reach its target 16 sig A star. And, if no extension is applied to U.S. copyright law, all music made before 1972 will be in the public domain. As for the particulars of Earth, who's to say what will befall humankind? According to Isaac Newton's interpretation of the Bible, the world will not end before 2060. After that, who knows? Scientists looking beyond the grim prediction surmise that in 50 years, living to the age of 100 will be far more commonplace, as will giving birth into a woman's 60s, limb and body restorations, and computer consciousness. Cars will drive themselves, the gap between rich and poor will widen, Rotating vertical farms powered by recycled water will feed residents of taller skyscrapers than those of today, apace with the deeply dug earth scrapers of tomorrow. Future shock. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show